0: In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we welcome you to the All Souls Sermon Podcast. Lord, speak and let your servants listen. In the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, amen. Good morning to all of you, and greetings in the name of our Lord Jesus. Uh, My name is Ephraim Radner. Um, I live in Toronto where I teach theology at Wycliffe College, uh, an Anglican seminary at the University of Toronto. And I've been here over these past few days as part of a conference that your parish has hosted. And I do want you all to know, I'm sure you know this already, but your clergy and your uh, fellow parishioners who are volunteers at this conference and others uh, have been just marvelously um, uh, well organized and welcoming, and witnessing to the love of our Lord, and you should be proud of them. And I've been very privileged to be a part of your community these past few days. Um, I, uh, in my work, I, I write a few books, uh, which a few people buy, and even fewer read, and even fewer understand. And. I confess that I often don't understand what I I write, Um, but in the midst of the confusions I both cause and feel, um, I'm convinced that the gospel is quite simple, though very profound. And that's demonstrated a little bit here in our gospel lesson for this Sunday morning. We've heard a rather simple story though it's quite shocking about a poor man Lazarus and an unnamed rich man. It's shocking in part because of the clarity of the outcomes as to what has happened, those outcomes being heaven and hell, and a chasm in between the two, and the fact that there is no passage from one to the other. The rich man is self-indulgent, and in a way that prophets like Amos and others decried, and he is utterly disregarding of the needs of the poor man, Lazarus. He just walks over him, oblivious, as he goes on to his feasting, as if he never knew that the man is even there or that he had any needs at all. And of course, we could make comparisons to our own lives as we go about them, Things like, I don't know, those hundreds of thousands of hungering children, millions really if you count them up, not only in Syria or Yemen or the Congo, but here in the United States. And the outcome, much as in the parable for them and for us, is frightening. But to me the striking thing isn't just the starkness of this outcome between the poor man, Lazarus, and the rich man. The striking thing to me is how Jesus describes the final conversation between hell and heaven, as it were. The rich man, tormented in his eternal punishment, asks permission to warn his brothers. And the answer of Abraham in heaven is, no. Let them read the scriptures. Moses and the prophets, it's all there. They need a special jolt, the tormented rich man. pleads. someone who might come back from the dead and tell them. And Abraham's answer again is no. If they don't obey now, no special miracle like the resurrection will make any difference. They already know how they are called to act. They already know. What do they know? Well, to be generous, to give to the poor, to save those who cannot save themselves, not to be self-indulgent while others suffer. Indeed, they do know all this. And so do we. So do we. Now, we might go on and try to complicate this simple story. These are very tricky matters, are they not? Wealth, poverty, need, the best way to respond, strategies, politics, self awareness. Surely people need training to figure all this out. I need training. It's all very hard after all. And if you don't go to a school of public policy, maybe you should go to seminary. Ha! Or maybe be a saint. But the parables claim is, in fact, a constant theme throughout the scriptures, especially in the New Testament. We all know what's what whether we're Jewish, in which case we have it all spelled out very clearly in the scriptures of Israel, or whether we're not Jewish and have heard it from the basic moral imperatives of our common sense. We know what we're supposed to do with our money, with our hands, with our hearts. Look in our consciences, and you'll find it all explained. And St. Paul writes about the whole human race in this way, messed up though we may be. He writes, quote, For what can be known about God is already evident in the very makeup of the world. It's a famous text at the beginning of the letter to the Romans. There's even a point in Luke's gospel elsewhere where Jesus becomes exasperated at all those people who are going around suing each other in the law courts, among other things. You all know what you should do, he says. There you go, running around trying to get... The law courts some judge to force your way upon others, pretending that some kind of external judgment is required from some kind of authority. And he says, why don't you judge for yourselves what is right? That's so on another occasion, annoyed that his questioners cannot figure out what God is up to, as if God's will is nothing but a clouded mystery. You know it. We know it. In the case of today's parable, we know what we're called to do in the face, say, of starving children. We can go into all the policy and economic discussions we want, but if there is someone starving, someone in need, we have what, and we have what they need, we know what we're supposed to do. Give to every man that asketh of thee, and of him that Taketh away thy goods, ask them not again, Jesus says. And it's because we know it already, isn't it, that we walk to the other side of the street when we see a homeless beggar. A bit like the parable of the Good Samaritan. Or turn our gaze aside, or click to another news story, or change the subject, or think of reasons why it's imprudent Or find reasons why we need the money more than they do. Or make up scenarios about how it won't help them much anyway, they'll just need it again. We make up all these things because we know what we're supposed to do and we just don't want to do it. And yes, the outcome, the payoff for doing what we want when we know it's wrong is what Jesus lays out today. Between you and us, a great chasm has been fixed. Part of the whole purpose of this unrelenting insistence by Jesus, I think, is simply to unmask our excuses. Or as Paul writes, Therefore thou art inexcusable, O man. One big excuse. That's what so much of our lives add, add up to, not just with the poor, but with our spouses or our children or our colleagues. But what's the point of emphasizing such a thing? Just to make us feel bad? Paul, I think, puts the argument in its right order. For all have sinned, he says, that's us, and come short of the glory of God. Yes, we know this too, as Christians. And now what? So he goes on, and he says, being justified freely by the grace, his grace, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. No excuse. Just grace. And for that, one asks, one pleads. For all the intransigent arrogance and cruelty of the rich man in Jesus' parable, I also think there's something rather poignant about it too especially in the light of the reality that we're no different from him, nor he from us. If we can't do it, why would we, why would I stand up here and judge him? Jesus, you recall, had other things to say about rich people. For it is easier for a camel to go through a needle's eye than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And rightly, when the disciples hear this, they then say with desperation, who then can be saved? To which Jesus replies, you remember, the things which are impossible with men are possible with God. No excuses, my friends. Only the gifts of God. But alas, the rich man asks for these gifts to So here is what I think is the practical payoff to this sad and shocking story. Pray for the gift of letting go of your excuses and receiving the power of God. Justification by grace means in part receiving from God a new will, a new heart, but you have to want it. For 20 years, after I was arrested and expelled from Burundi in East Africa where I had been teaching as a young priest, arrested, interrogated, expelled, losing both friends and self-respect as well as some meager property, all due to the trumped up charges of one of my students who had been working for the secret police. For 20 years, I carried an unforgiving hatred towards that young man who had lied about me to the security forces. Bit by bit, I sort of stopped thinking about it and just went on with my dried-out spirit. But one day, that former student, now I'm talking about 20 years later, that former student, we were both around 50 perhaps, called me up out of the blue. He had escaped by a circuitous route to America. And in the meantime, he had lost everything in the civil wars during those intervening years, including his wife and, I think, his child. So he had suffered terribly. He had found my phone number on the web and called me up. How are you, he says. He said nothing about what he had done, and I certainly didn't bring it up. But all of a sudden, talking to him, the huge cliff face of anger loomed up in my mind and my heart again. Unveiled, towering, formidable. We chatted amiably for 20 minutes and hung up. I pondered, and I wept a little. And I realized that for 20 years, I had never once, not once, Asked God for the gift of forgiveness. How late in my life it came. Years of wasted bitterness. And I know I'm not alone in a story like that. Love your enemies, Jesus told the crowds. Turn to him the other cheek. But who can do this? Who can be saved? With men impossible not with God. You recall the story from Mark's gospel. There's a desperate father whose mentally ill son seems beyond cure and the disciples fail in their attempts at healing. And the father admits his unbelief to Jesus and Jesus then heals the son. He does. That is the divine impossible possibility. But then he tells the disciples who ask him, why couldn't we heal him? That the way into the divine gift in this case is prayer. Only by prayer, he says, could this be done. Ask for what only God can give. The God who, as Paul says to Timothy today, quickeneth, literally gives life, creates. Creates indeed from nothing, even from the nothingness of our heart. I could give you verse after verse about this, our call to this unceasing prayer for God's gifts that includes the gifts of doing all that we know in our hearts is right and good. Or as Paul writes elsewhere, God is at work in you both to will and to work His good pleasure. God is when you can't seem to do it. Now I wish I could say that Christians unequivocally do God's will more fully than others, but of course we know that's not true. Still, the very existence of saints, now and in times past, proves that it is possible. Possible for us, for you, and for me, to grow into the active will of God. How? By being joined to the one whose own life can change our wills, can mold our hearts, can shape our very lives into the form of, doing what we know is good. And we come to church, at least this is what we get if we come in faith, we come to church in order in part to grow into this life of Jesus, becoming like him, as Paul also says, that he may grant us his spirit to dwell in our hearts, to strengthen us with might, to be rooted and grounded in his love, and to have the power to be filled with his own life. I know, and I'm telling you this sincerely, I know of no Christian who has opened his or her heart in all honesty and prayed in all faith. Jesus, come dwell in me. I have no, no, I know of no Christian who has prayed this genuine prayer. Jesus, change me. Jesus, let me become like you. Who has not become a vessel of God's own will, His own doing, God's own impossible possibility in some real fashion. I can do all things in him who strengthens me. Paul says. That is a Christian motto. That is God's promise. Without excuse, yes, that's us. But we are given the gift of prayer for the gifts of God. Lord, make me generous. How many have asked God to make generous. Lord, help me be more willing to serve and to share. How many of us have asked God to help us give our things away? Or as I have failed to my shame, Lord, give me a forgiving heart. Remove my anger. How many of us have asked God in the midst of whatever difficulties of relationship in our marriages or families or friendships to change us from resentment to gentleness? Lord Jesus, live in me, dwell in me, work in me. What a prayer. My friends, let us allow God to use the knowledge we have of his will, of his holy desires. We know what is right, we know what is good, that's the simple part. Let the Lord make it happen in us, that's the profound part. Let Jesus take our hand and our heart and make us like him. Among the greatest words in the New Testament for those who know the good are the following. He who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. So we pray, and so may it be. Amen. Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of All Souls Episcopal Church. For service times and more information, go to allsoulsokc.com God be with you.